Thank you for being here and being in worship with us. And if you are in our overflow room or if you're joining us online, uh, thank you for being here as well. As you can see, we are continuing our series today called Sins and Stones on the Life of King David. By the way, this is the next to the last in this series. Uh, we will actually complete this series that we've been in for a long time. Next week, uh, we'll bury David, let the man finally rest in peace, and uh, we, will, we will move on. Um, so it's, it's been a great series. It's, uh, it's been a long time that we've been in this particular series. If you've been here with us, um, you know that King David was the second king over Israel, the most famous king over Israel, uh, who lived about a thousand years before Christ. And David was known for a lot of things. Uh, he was uh, very brave, very courageous. Uh, he was very handsome. He was a great leader. But the thing that he was most known for is that David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man who pursued the Lord. David was a man who pursued righteousness in his life. Except if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we saw where David did not pursue righteousness. He pursued this woman named Bathsheba who wasn't his wife, who was married, and David ended up committing the sins of adultery and murder. And so that week we talked about the importance of guarding our lives against sin. Of putting up boundaries, of putting up protections to keep us from sin. And we talked about how David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was not where he was supposed to be. He did not have the right guardrails in place and he ended up giving in to temptation and so then last week we looked at the consequences of those sins that David committed and we talked last week about how God gives us rules and laws to protect us that the laws of God are like the laws of nature if you go up on a 10-story building and you jump off that building you do not break the law of gravity. You break your neck. And that's how it is with the laws of God. God says, look, I know how you operate best. So here are the parameters. Here are the laws I'm giving you. And when we break those laws, it's not that we break God's laws. We break ourselves on God's laws. And last week we saw that after David committed sins, the sins of adultery and murder, how those consequences affected his life and those around him because of those choices that he made. So this week, we're going to talk about rebounding from sin. So you, maybe you put the guardrails up, maybe you don't, but you give into temptation, you commit the sin, you suffer the consequences of that sin. What do you do next? How, how do you rebound from sin? What do you do when you really mess up? That's where we're we're going to talk about today. If you've got a Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, this is in your Old Testament. 2 Samuel is right after 1 Samuel, just before 1 Kings. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24. It's a fairly long chapter. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'll summarize a few uh, different sections. Well, let's read through this, and we're going to see what we need to do uh, when we have really messed up. We'll start in verse 1. Here's what we see. It says, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. 
Okay, so there's several things to note here in this very first verse. It begins by saying that the Lord was angry with Israel. We're not sure why. Not sure what, what they had done. Doesn't tell us in the previous chapter. We do, do not see it in any other place. Israel had done something that made the Lord angry. And so he incited David to take a census, a counting of the people. This was not wrong, except in this case it was. Taking a census was not necessarily a sin, except in this case it was. We'll talk about that in just a second, but here's what is so interesting. It says, the Lord incited David to take the census that was wrong, that was a sin. Let's stop there for a moment. That creates some problems for us, doesn't it? I mean, it says the Lord incited David to commit this sin. Well, there's a couple of problems. One, in the New Testament, James is very clear that the Lord does not tempt us, that when we sin, it is our own doing. And yet here it says the Lord incited David to sin. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that this particular passage has a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles. Exact same account of the exact same story, except it opens this way. It says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So James says if David sinned, it was David's fault. First Chronicles says if David sinned, it was Satan's fault. First Samuel 24 says David sinned and it was the Lord who incited David to sin. Which is it? Who's to blame for the sin of David? David, Satan, or the Lord? The answer there is yes. <laughs> now, this is a very complex issue, so I'm going to give you just, just the summary of it all. When we sin, we have free will, and we choose to sin, and it's our fault. And we chose the sin. However, Satan is the tempter. And in this case, and in many cases, Satan is enticing those who follow the Lord to sin. And yet, the Lord is sovereign over all. And everything that happens, happens because the Lord is in complete control over everything, including what Satan does and including our sin. We sometimes think of the battle between God and Satan almost like Star Wars, the battle between darkness and light, you know, and they coexist and they're co-equal and they're sort of fighting, you know, for people and they're fighting to see who can win. That is not a biblical picture. Satan is a dog on a leash, and the Lord has control of that leash, and he only gives him as much, as much slack as the Lord will allow. So basically, the Lord is sovereign over all. So in this particular case, was God responsible for David's sin? Well, yes, in a sense, because God is sovereign over all. Satan was there tempting David. Was Satan responsible? Well, he was tempting David to do the census. Was David responsible? Absolutely. He is responsible for his own sin. Now, does that answer it for you? No. For some of you, it does not. And you're going to send me an email. It is a complex issue. So when I email you back, you will get a link to an article that's very, very long. So get ready. Get you a cup of coffee, and you can drink it. Now, this is mainly a theological issue for us. It is not a practical issue. Why? Because if you commit the sin, you can say the devil made me do it and it's his fault. Or the Lord is sovereign over all, so you know the Lord's really the one that made me do this. You can say that, but guess what? You still suffer for your sin. 
On a practical level, this, this does not matter whether we blame ourselves, Satan, or the Lord, because we are the ones who suffer. David here chose to do this census that was wrong. Okay, verse 2, and we'll get into why the census was wrong. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him. Joab was the commander of the army during this time. He was the same commander that was, um, that was given the orders to have Uriah killed. Joab had a major influence on David's life for a period of time. In fact, I've told people that Joab is uh, this major biblical character that no one's ever heard of. You know, people don't really study Joab, but for a long period of time, Joab was involved in David's life. So the king says to Joab and the army, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. Again, taking a census was not necessarily wrong. In fact, we have a census in the Old Testament and an entire book of the Old Testament is named after that census. We call it the book of Numbers. There were many times that the Lord would order a census or that taking a census was okay. Here we see why it was wrong. And it's because David not only took a census, but he took a census of specifically the fighting men. Here what we see is the heart behind the action. It was not just the action that David took, but it's why he ordered the census. And it was because he wanted to know, could he go into battle against the nations around them? He wanted to know, how strong am I? Can I trust in my own strength? In fact, we know this is wrong because Joab responds to David later and says, don't do this. Why would you do such a wicked thing? Trust in the Lord. If you're going to go into battle, number one, ask God, should we go into battle against this nation? And if the Lord says yes, then trust in the Lord's strength, not in your own strength. Why would you do such a wicked thing? But the king's command overruled Joab, and so he ordered the census. And skip down to verse 8. It says, after they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Notice that David had almost 10 months to consider his actions and the senses that he had ordered. He had 10 months to repent, but he never did. Verse 9, Joab reported the number of, of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. So they go and they, they do this census, takes them almost 10 months to do the census, and they determined that in Israel, which was the northern kingdom, there were 800,000 men who could fight. In the southern kingdom, which was one tribe called Judah, it was a large tribe. In the southern kingdom, there were 500,000 men. There were 1.3 men, 1.3 million men who were able to fight. Now, if you flip over to 1 Chronicles and you read the same story, the numbers don't match up exactly. Don't let that bother you. In this case, they counted all of the men, including the standing army, and in 1 Chronicles, they only count the men who were not in the army. So here David gets a total of all of those who were able to fight. He was 
able to get a picture of what he could do. And then in verse 10, here's what he says after he gets that picture. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Now, in one sense, we wonder why it took 10 months for David to wake up and to realize his sin. But in another sense, I get it. Because for 10 months, David was in the planning stages of his sin. For 10 months, David was pre-planning the sin. He had not actually committed the sin. It was only when the report came in that he realized, oh, I, I have committed an awful sin. For a period of time, it was an idea. I'm going to get, an, I, I'm going to get these numbers of, of the fighting men that I have, and you know, I'm, I'm going to be able to then rely on my own strength. For a num- number of months, it was just this idea. But once it became reality, this light bulb goes off. And just like it happened when he committed the sins of adultery and murder, he woke up from his sin stupor and he said, I've sinned, I've blown it. Except this time I want you to notice, he uses the same language he used when he realized his sins of adultery and murder. He said, I have sinned. But this time he says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Last time, adultery and murder, he said, I have sinned, takes the senses, and he says, I have sinned greatly. We'll come back to why in just a moment. Verse 11, before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says, I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. Now, there's not a whole lot that is known about Gad the prophet. Um, In 1 Chronicles, we discovered that he actually wrote a book about the life of King David. That book has been lost to history. However, if anyone ever finds that book, it would be worth a whole lot of money Um, at this point. Gad was a lot like Nathan the prophet. Uh, he He was a priest of some sort, and he, like Nathan, comes to David to confront David over his sin. Except this time, he doesn't do like Nathan and say, this is what is going to happen because of your sin. This time, Gad comes to David with three options for his punishment. And here were the three options. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of plague in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. Which option do you want so I can go back and tell the Lord how he should punish you? If I had been David, I would have hated this. It's like a five-year-old being told by their parent, I'm going to punish you and I will let you choose the punishment. You can have a light spanking for five days, five days in a row, every day, or one bad spanking now. Which do you want? Ah, man, I don't know. You know, light spanking, five days in a row, maybe that's easier to handle, but I can get it over with right now with one spanking. I I don't know. I mean, if I were David, I would have thought, 
How do I make this choice? Notice how David made his decision. Verse 14. David said to Gath, I am in deep distress. Absolutely. The Lord is going to punish me. I am in deep distress. I have to choose that punishment. I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. For his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. In other words, I will choose the plague. And here is why. If it's three months of being pursued by my enemies, that means I am falling into the hands of an army of another nation. And if it's three years of famine, that means I am falling into the hands of those nations that have stored up food. I am falling into the hands of the corn merchants and the grain merchants who will come and they will sell their wares at exorbitant prices. If I'm going to fall into hands, I want to fall into the hands of the Lord because only the Lord is truly merciful and will do what is exactly right. So so I will choose the plague. Then verse 15. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. 70,000 people in Israel died. We read this text and we think, that's, that's awful. It's not fair. David sinned by ordering the census, and 70,000 people lose their lives? That's not fair. Why would God allow that to happen? There's a couple of things to keep in mind. One is, at the beginning of this passage, we read where Israel had angered the Lord. And the Lord was using David's sin to then punish Israel. And so Israel here was being punished by God for something that they had done. The second thing to keep in mind is we read a passage like this and we say, that's not fair. David sinned, other people suffered. That's not fair. That's exactly what we talked about last week. When we sin, we're not the only ones who suffer. Others suffer as well. And that's how it works. It's not fair at all, but that's how it works. A mom or dad chooses to leave their family. The family explodes. It's not fair to the rest of the family members because someone's left, but that's what sin does. It's not fair that parents should suffer for the sins of their children, but they do. That's life. It's not fair that hundreds of employees at Enron would lose their retirement because of the sinful choices of a few executives at that company, but that's what happens. It's not fair that someone loses their life because someone else decides to drive drunk, and yet that's exactly what happens. We can read this passage all day long and say that's not fair, but that is how sin works. We're not the only ones who suffer. Others suffer as well. Verse 16, when the angel stretched out his hand to to destroy Jerusalem, The Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Okay, so remember that David wanted to be punished by by the Lord and not by men. 
because he knew the Lord's hand would be merciful, and that's exactly what we see here. So this, this part of the text actually jumps ahead in the story, and we see why the Lord relented, why the Lord was merciful. Um, David goes to buy a threshing floor. The threshing floor was sort of the equivalent of a barn today. Um, it was part of the daily lives of those who lived in an agrarian society. It was a hard, flat surface. Um, on this surface, they would place the wheat. Animals would walk back and forth over the wheat. It would separate the wheat from the husk. They could then use the wheat to make the bread, um, to make bread. David goes to Aruna the Jebusite to say, I want to purchase your threshing floor to build an altar to the Lord. This was Aruna's response in verse 22. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna, gives all of this to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. So the king comes to this man named Aruna. The death angel has gone throughout Israel, is coming on Jerusalem. Uh, David goes to this man and says, I want to buy your threshing floor. And Aruna says, you're the king. You don't have to buy it. Here, you can have it. And in fact, I know what you're going to do. You're going to build an altar here. And on that altar, you will make a sacrifice. So not only can you have the threshing floor, I will throw in the animals for the sacrifice. And oh yeah, by the way, you're going to do a burnt offering, which means you need firewood. I'll throw in the firewood. Here are my tools, the threshing sledges. They're made of wood. Here are the yokes I use for the oxen. They're made of wood. I'm going to throw all of this in for you, king. You are the king. Here's everything you need to make this sacrifice to the Lord. And notice how the king responds. But the king replied to Aruna, no. I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. Scholars have said that's equivalent to about $16,000 today, but it's really hard to to know if that's exactly right. Then here's how the passage ends. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of Israel, and the plague on Israel was stopped. So David here basically sacrifices to the Lord, is repentant before the Lord, and the plague stops, and the death angel withdraws his hand. So what does this mean for us? When you've really blown it, what is it that you are to do next? If you've got your message map with you, I've got this information on there. What to do when you've blown it, when you've really messed up? Number one, recognize your sin. Recognize your sin. When David committed the sins of adultery and murder, it was crystal clear that he had sinned. In fact, when we did that passage two weeks ago, and I described what David had done, I did not have to spend any time at all explaining why adultery and murder are sins. I did not get a single email from anyone in here going, Hey, you talked about David committing the sins of adultery and murder. Are those really sins? You know, I'm not really sure. 
We didn't have to spend any time because it was very clear that what David had done was wrong. But I got to the senses, and I had to camp out there for a minute. And to talk about David's heart behind it and and why in this case it was wrong and some cases it's not wrong, but here it was wrong. See, with adultery and murder, we never have to say, well, you know, yeah, he committed murder, but his heart was in the right place. You know, so it was okay because, you know, his heart was in the right place. He committed adultery, but his heart was in the right place. It's clear on those that they are sinful. But here with the senses, uh, we we had to understand the heart behind it. This is the difference between what we call the sins of the flesh and the sins of the spirit. The sins of the flesh, we know that we are wrong. We know that we have blown it. The sins of the spirit can be a little more sneaky, a little more deceptive, a little harder to recognize. And we can go for long periods of time committing the sins of the Spirit. And we don't know it, and no one else does either. And we just drift further and further from the Lord without recognizing our sin. We can be full of pride. We can be apathetic in our worship. We we can become extremely selfish, but they're not the big visible sins. And so we don't recognize our sin before the Lord. We have a tremendous ministry here that meets on Monday nights called Celebrate Recovery. Many of you are involved with Celebrate Recovery. If you're not involved, you you know about Celebrate Recovery. Most of those who participate in Celebrate Recovery have struggled with substance addiction, alcohol or drug addiction in their past. Not all, but many of those who participate in that have. And one of the things I love about those gatherings is no one comes in pretending like they have it all together and they haven't messed up. They don't come in and say, well, you know, I'm here, but really my past is pretty clean. I don't have any problems. I mean, when you've sold your wedding band to a pawn shop to go get drugs, you know you've blown it. You know, when you've had an experience where you're in handcuffs in the back of a cop car, you know, you, you know that you've really blown it. But, but we can go for long periods of time, looking fine, walking the walk, talking the talk, acting like we've got everything together, but we are rotten on the inside and we fail to recognize our sin. Now, here's what I want you to notice. When David, when David sinned with murder and adultery... He said, I have sinned. When he committed the sin of pride with the senses, he said, I have sinned greatly. Meaning the Lord takes the sins of the Spirit very seriously. The first thing that we need to do is to recognize our sin. Second thing that we need to do is to repent both in words and in actions. Notice in this account that David did not just say, hey, I'm sorry. I've done wrong, I'm sorry. He did wrong, and then he backed it up with his actions. He built this altar, and I love what he says to Aruna. When Aruna says, here, I'll just give it to you. David says, no, no, no. No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. What kind of sacrifice is that? 
What kind of repentance is that if it costs me nothing? If I'm not changing my ways, if I'm not changing my actions, then is that true repentance? Years ago when I started in ministry, one of the first churches that I served, there was a young man in that church, a college student, who was involved in a car accident and lost his life. He was 21 years old, lost his life in that car accident. It was a major shock to um, the church and to the community. And I remember the, the sanctuary where his funeral was held was absolutely packed. All of these you know, college students were there. You know, it, it, it was just this shock to everyone who you know, knew this guy and knew his story and knew what had happened. And I remember at the conclusion of that service, this college student came and found me. And he had this look of desperation on his face. And he came to me and he introduced himself. He said, I was friends with, and he named the guy who had died. And he looked at me and he pointed at the casket and he said, if that was my body in that casket, I do not know where my soul would be right now. Now you talk about a teachable moment. So let's go over here and talk. And we sat down and we talked. And I said, there's a way you can know. There's a way that you can know that if that was you, that you would spend eternity in heaven with God. He said, tell me how. And I read several scriptures, and he prayed the sinner's prayer right then. I baptized him the next Sunday in church. I then called him and said, hey, won't you come meet with me? Let's go through several studies together. I want you to help, uh, help you grow in your faith. He came and met with me for one week. After that, went back to college back to his old ways, back to his old friends, back to his old lifestyle. Turns out he wanted to make sure his soul was okay, but not if it cost him anything. Not if it cost him his plans and the way that he wanted to live his life. Repentance without any action to it is not repentance at all. Words only, just saying I'm sorry, is not the biblical picture of repentance. It is changing how we approach the Lord. It is changing our actions. So the first thing is recognize your sins. Secondly, repent in both words and actions. The third is to accept God's forgiveness. So many of us will get through number one, recognize our sin. Get through number two, we'll repent. And we'll really repent. We'll do everything we can to show Others, hey, we, we've repented of this. And we get stuck at number three. And we say, I just don't know that the Lord can ever forgive me for what I've done. Here's what I want you to hear. Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed your sin from you. When you repent, when you ask the Lord for forgiveness, here is what he does. Because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, God forgives you completely and takes that sin and throws it into the deepest part of the ocean and then puts up a sign that says, no fishing. And you can't fish there and nobody else can as well. And so often we just keep going back to that sin and saying, God, you... You just can't use me. I mean, I, I've blown it too bad. Can you really forgive me? And the Lord says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I have removed your sin from you. You are forgiven. 
And David, we've talked about this so many times, committed the sins of adultery and murder. And yet, even after that sin, he was called a man after God's own heart. You have never sinned beyond the grace of God. You have never sinned beyond God's ability to forgive that sin. So you repent, recognize your sin, you repent of that sin, you then accept the forgiveness that God offers, and then finally the last thing is let God use you. Once you've gone through all of that, let God use you. Here's what I love about this story. David goes and he builds this altar right outside the city of Jerusalem. So the death angel is moving throughout Israel. People are dying all over the place. David repents of his sin. He puts feet to that repentance and he goes and he builds this altar right right outside of Jerusalem before the death angel comes to destroy that city. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, where David built that altar was the exact same place where Solomon constructed his temple. A thousand years later, that was virtually the same place where Jesus Christ was crucified. Understand that God took this this awful sin of David, the sin of Israel, where 70,000 people lost their lives. A death angel moves throughout Israel. And the place where God showed his mercy to David was the same place where God has shown his ultimate mercy to every one of us in here. God loves to use our brokenness. God loves to use all of the junk of our past for his ultimate glory and for our good. God loves to take beauty from ashes And make it into the most beautiful story. Would you let God do that in your life? Regardless of your past, regardless of where you've been, would you let God take the ashes of your sin and junk and make something beautiful from it?